Well, if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, it's been said many times, and we can't say it enough, we need you. Lord, please help your servant to preach. Again, the truths that are seen here cannot be conveyed in human words in any spiritual sense, in any eternal or meaningful sense. It must be a work of the Holy Spirit to apply these things. And I pray that when we're finished, we would not say what a great sermon, we would not say what great delivery, we would not say what a great story, but we would say what a great and mighty God and what a great and mighty Savior we have, what great and mighty deliverance we have received. Lord, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat.
standing over the whole storyline of the Bible and hovering and incorporating countless types and shadows of salvation, there are three major events that encapsulate all of redemptive history. This will help some of you, hopefully, when you, in reading your Bibles. Those events are, first, creation. Second, the exodus from Egypt leading all the way into the establishment of the children of Israel in the promised land. And thirdly, the incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's very interesting, as you read through the Scriptures, and I hope that you all are not only reading through the Scriptures, but reading through the Scriptures quickly enough that you're able to make sense of this, of this story and what I'm about to say. As these particular events unfold in history, following that, they're then interpreted by the authors of Scripture as a means to display God's glory, God's nature, and God's power. And, and primarily for those first two, they are used to point us to the fullest revelation of them in Christ. In other words, after creation, you see the biblical authors use creation language to talk about God and to explain the greatness of God and the power of God and the, the sovereignty of God over all things. After that, the, the exodus takes place here and throughout uh, the, the scriptures, even, even during that time, and then as we read through the Psalms and uh, the writings after that, there's, there's added to that list. Now there's creation. Now there's the exodus of God's people. That language is used to extol God and, and exalt His power and His, His nature and His goodness and His sovereignty. And then when we come to the New Testament, after the work of Christ is completed, the apostolic authors then use the language of creation and rescue from Egypt into Canaan to help us understand the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. They use that same language. In other words, it all builds on top of each other, all coming to a full head in Christ. And if we can understand creation, and if we can understand the exodus and the deliverance of God's people, that helps us to understand what Christ has done in, in more than just uh, an external sense. We understand internally what God has been doing. And, and I'll give you some examples of this. I think this is important in understanding the Bible as a whole and also what God has been doing. The first great work of God, of course, is creation. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, we have to remember we're not just reading about creation. Moses didn't put that there so that we can argue about how many days it took. Were they really 24-hour days or were they expanses of time? I do think those are important things to to be clear on, but that's not why. Moses didn't write that stuff so that we would understand what was happening. We, we read this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's obvious that what he's doing is he's taking that initial act of creation and saying, just how you saw that work, God creating everything out of nothing, that's how salvation is. God creates something from nothing. That, that's, that's the point. Or in 2 Corinthians 5.17... 
Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, the language of creation is being used. And he's, he's telling us if you are a true Christian, you're not like that original creation. You're a part of the new creation. Which again sort of gives us this inclination, this thought, this preview that there is a, a new creation in contrast to the old. Not just with us, but in all things. The second great work of God, again the Exodus. God calling His people out of Egypt all the way until they are established in the land of Canaan which is a much longer work as far as, as days, months, and years are concerned. But we read this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, it was not until God called His people out of Egypt, made them into a nation at Sinai, and then led them into the promised land, and, and we could say prior to that even, the, the priesthood and the, the work of the Levites was established even in, the, in their wilderness wanderings. None of that language would make sense had that prior story not taken place. You see, and he uses that to teach his readers about salvation. What's happening? What's God doing in this? Again, in salvation, God redeems the people, and He makes them all to be the fulfillment of that original type found in the tribe of Levi. It, when we read those stories and we read about the different tribes, the point is not just so we can see what happened with that family. Peter tells us what the point was. Paul tells us what the point was. You are now a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, what God was doing then was a picture of what God's doing now. And, and now all of God's people are set apart for lives to be devoted to God in worship. Now, we don't have tabernacle worship, but everything, our lives are to be a living sacrifice. Again, that sacrificial language there. Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That language makes no sense unless, we, unless there was a priesthood established and a tabernacle and worship system established prior to that. In verses 9 and 10 of that same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, for uh, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. If you think about the nation of Israel, they were just a family, just a family of people. Once they were not a people, but now they, they became God's people. Once you have not received, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we see that language, a priesthood, a holy nation... Some would come to that and say, well, of course Peter can say that. As a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience, it only makes sense that he would tell them that they were a royal priesthood and a holy man. It makes sense to them. But when we get to verse 10, he says, you were not a people and now you are a people. In other words, he's proclaiming an entirely new status held by those who had been redeemed by Christ and His finished work than that of those who were just physical 
Israelites. It's completely different. It's something new. And we see both of these ideas put together in Revelation chapter 21. There, there we see the, the final picture of all things. Verses 1 and 2, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That would make absolutely no sense if we did not have a, an account of creation. If we didn't have an account of the establishment of worship in Canaan and the building of the city of Jerusalem and the, the tabernacle and the, and the, or the temple in Jerusalem, none of these things would make any sense. But there he puts them all together and he tells us that the glorified state of Christ's people is going to be like those first major acts of God. It's going to be sort of like creation, but it's a new creation. It's going to be sort of like the establishment of worship in Jerusalem, but it's going to be new. It's a whole new work. All of these great works teach us about our God. They teach us about His nature as our, as our Creator and our Redeemer. And they teach us about His sovereign power in all things. The first two point us to redemption in Christ, which is the fulfillment of all of God's work in redemption. That's why we have an Old Testament. It's, it's because God is teaching us about what He's been doing in Christ. They, they are pictures. I think it's also interesting to note, each of these events are works of God and God alone. Creation, the Exodus, work of Christ, works of God and God alone. They are works in which God worked, He accomplished them, and then He rested from them. Each of them have a particular day set aside to commemorate them, where God invites His people to rest with Him in His work and remember what He has done and look forward to an eternal rest. That's Paul's argument in Hebrews 3 and 4. In other words, the point in all of that is the Bible is a salvation book. It is a book about God saving His people. Creation, Exodus, Christ, it's all one history of God redeeming a people for His own glory and for the sake of His love for His Son. So when we come to that middle piece of the redemptive puzzle, puzzle that, that rescue from Egypt where He calls His people out of Egypt, He brings them to Sinai, He eventually gets them all the way into the promised land where worship is established. And we, we, you can read this language in Scripture. God rests. He finally has a place of rest there. When we study these, this middle picture, what was the spark that lit that flame, the initial work that, that set it off and put the whole thing in motion? Well, the answer is it's the judgment of God that came upon Egypt that culminated, remember that, culminated in the Passover night and then the exodus of God's people from that bondage. Again, we're, when we think of salvation, it's usually a, um, well, I should say the initial work of God in regeneration and conversion is typically a very quick thing. God, we, we usually don't even know when the Holy Spirit is coming in and giving a new heart. And all we usually can judge it by is the external uh, fruit 
repentance and faith. I repented and I believed, and I think that's why there's so much misunderstanding about the, the order of salvation. It's usually very quick. And even in creation, it was, it was six days long and God rested on the seventh day. Here, we're seeing this long, drawn-out picture of all of that in history. And so we, when I say the initial spark, I'm using language like a spark. It's here and gone. But in reality, it's, it's this judgment of God that culminates in the night of Passover and then the exodus of God's people from bondage that set that whole thing in motion. And so I want to look at that, this Passover evening, and see what it teaches us about the biblical doctrine of the atonement. Because I do think there is a picture here. So, to recap where we've been. Adam, Luke tells us in Luke 3.38, Adam, the son of God was tested as to his obedience. He failed. And instead of immediately being killed, his shame is covered by the killing of another, an animal. Last week, Abraham tested as to his obedience. He's commanded to kill his only son Isaac. He obeys and a ram is substituted for Isaac in order that God's covenant promises might continue. And so we've learned in these two stories that the biblical doctrine of the atonement from these types and shadows is an act of God, a transaction between father and son, where God takes the initiative to mete out the judgment due to His people for their sins on His Son, and the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully compliant, fully obedient to His Father unto death in the place of His people. There was no haggling, no, no pulling one another's arms. It was completely and totally a work of, of, of unity within the Godhead. Now let's look at the Passover and see what we can learn from this. First, let's establish the context. At this point in redemptive history... The family line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that, that family has become so numerous that they are considered a threat to the Egyptians. And so in order to prevent any potential uprising, which they wouldn't have, that doesn't seem like they would have, but in order to prevent that, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, has constrained now this family now called the Hebrews, more than likely a couple million people, to slavery and forced labor. So they're slaves in Egypt. And this is not a new story. Very well known, in fact. And so we, we, we come to this topic or this issue, this idea of bondage. But I think it's interesting, and I, I want you to note the language that God uses to describe this bondage. If you still have your Bible open, turn it to Exodus chapter 4. Verses 22 and 23. And if you're one to mark in your Bible, this is a good one to mark. Very important, very, very, I would say, new language. Verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now God calls this multitude, Israel, 
named after their ancestor Jacob. He calls them his firstborn son. It, in other words, he puts the whole nation together like one man. And you see this language, it, it continues throughout the rest of the New Testament. God will refer to Israel as just a man uh, or, or a person. And, and he uses various names of, of the sons of Jacob. He calls Israel his firstborn son and he states very clearly from the outset, if you don't let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. And so this picture, God's son, is continued throughout the Old Testament to prefigure and point to Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So let's put that now in our, in our recap. Adam, the Son of God, is tested as to his obedience. He fails. Instead of immediately being killed, his shame is covered by the killing of another, an animal. Abraham, tested as to his obedience, told to kill his only son. He obeys. A ram is substituted for his son Isaac in order that the covenant promises might continue. Now Israel, God's firstborn son, is in bondage and God tells Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me or I will kill your son. Son for son. And so we have a son in bondage. But we also have to remember that this bondage was not something that had taken God by surprise. It's not a, a glitch in the plan. The only living and sovereign God who had decreed all things from times eternal is not only aware of their bondage, but He knew that it would happen. This is all a part of His plan. In Genesis chapter 15, all the way back when God had first called Abram, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God planned this time in Egypt not only to preserve the family of Jacob from famine in the time of Joseph, but also to allow for the heaping up of the sins of the Amorites so that full and swift judgment would come upon them through the means of Israel's army. God's saying, in other words, the Amorites have not sinned enough for the judgment I want to bring upon them. So y'all are going to go and you're going to give them around 400 more years to continue in that. Then I'm going to call you out and it will be time for their judgment. And so we see God's purpose. The nation has been preserved and now the time has come for them to be released from Egypt. And notice there that God said He would bring judgment on the nations that are on the nation that they serve. And that leads us to the ten plagues. That's the point of the ten plagues. Judgment. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12, God says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
And so we need to understand that throughout this whole episode of Egyptian captivity, God has been working all things according to the counsel of His will in order to preserve the Hebrew people, to prepare the Ammonites for judgment, but also by means of these ten plagues to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. See, God's doing His own thing here. God's working. God's moving. God is just displaying His power and His, His authority over all of the, the heaped-up false gods of, of the nations and of here specifically the Egyptians. That brings us to the Passover, which is the tenth and final plague that God would bring on the Egyptians for their idolatry. Every plague, if you study this out, every plague represents judgment on a particular God in Egypt. Every one of them was to just to continue to chop at the tree of their false idolatry, their false worship and their idolatry. Now we come to the killing of the firstborn son, which again, this was the plan all along. God already said He was going to do this. But firstborns, and especially sons, represent the continuation of the family. And if the family, then the nation. In addition to that, Egyptians considered Pharaoh himself to be God. The Egyptians thought Pharaoh was God. And so Pharaoh's son, Pharaoh's firstborn son, in their minds, was the next in line to be God for them. And so by killing every firstborn, God would display His unmatched power and superiority not only on all of their false animistic gods, frogs and cows and cats and dogs, but also through the, the man that they could look at and see as a god and the whole nation. He would render a complete uh, generation almost wiped out to show them Egypt is nothing to me. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 12. In verses 1 through 11, we see prescriptions for that Passover evening, the night when God would execute this final judgment. It's important as we walk through this section to notice all of the things that are mentioned and how much detail is given to each. First, in verses 1 and 2, there is a calendar change. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So this upcoming exodus from Egypt is such a monumental event in the life of this nation that it would constitute a change in their calendar forever. This was almost like the birth of Israel, their birthday. Now, they had gone into Egypt as a family. Now they're coming out as a nation. Just like when we talk about America and we say it's our nation's birthday based on July 4th, 1776. Well, we know people were here long before that. That wasn't when we first got here, but that was when we achieved our independence. It's sort of the same way. God's calling them out. He's going to make them a nation consecrated unto Himself. And so it's so major, it's such a big event that it will change their calendar for them to remember forever. This was when we became a nation. Then in verses 3 through 6, we see the prescriptions for this Passover lamb. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, 
a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now notice all of the details with regard to this lamb. First he talks about the number of lambs or the amount. They were to have a lamb per household, that is per family unit within a home. They were to have one lamb. If that household was too small to eat a whole lamb, they could get together with another small household in order to finish the lamb off. And it says, take according to what each can eat. The prescription is not with regard to having enough for everyone to get full. It's just to have enough people gathered together so that the lamb is consumed. Just enough for everyone to get some without there being any leftover or any unused, any slaughtered on accident. So he goes into detail about the number. He talks about the kind of lamb. It must be a lamb without blemish. It could not be blind or crippled, no scabs, no mutilations, no disabilities. It couldn't have an itch, a skin disease, a sickness of any kind. In other words, it must be a perfect, spotless lamb. A lamb that would be perfectly acceptable. A lamb that would have great potential for use in years to come. It would be a male lamb, in other words, there would be potential in this male lamb for years of multiplication and fruitfulness. A lamb from whose loins that family could benefit for years to come. It had to be a year old. and that, In other words, it couldn't be so young that it was practically useless. But it also couldn't be a sheep so old that it was practically useless. It had to be a good, healthy, budding lamb. A, a good lamb. But it could be from the sheep or from the goats. And then notice the prescriptions for the blood. One verse. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Notice how little is spoken of the blood compared to how many details are given concerning the lamb. The emphasis is not so much on the death of the lamb and the blood of the lamb. The emphasis is on the perfection of the lamb that had to die. It had to be a perfect lamb according to all these statutes. When you find that perfect lamb, kill it and use its blood. In verses 8 through 11 then, we come to the prescriptions for this Passover meal. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
So they were to eat unleavened bread with bitter herbs and spices on it. In other words, this was not going to be a feast of celebration. It was not going to be a joyous occasion of, of laughter and, and um, boisterous behavior. It was a bitter meal. And none of it was to be left until morning. All of the lamb was to be consumed. If there was to be some left, it was to be burned. Don't leave any meat of the lamb. And again, you can see the emphasis on the lamb and its suitability for the need at hand. There was to be no extra lambs killed. There were to be no extra meat left over. It was to be a perfectly suitable sacrifice in, in amount for the people who would eat. They were not supposed to stuff themselves and just get full off of it. But everybody was supposed to eat some of it. They weren't to save leftovers for the road. They would eat and they would be done. Burn the rest. In other words, they would have to trust in the Lord's provisions for the next day. Now in their belts, having their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand, the picture is they were to eat that meal as if as soon as they were done, they're running, they're leaving. Eat fast and in a, in a, in a state in which you could, as soon as you're done, as soon as everybody gets done, you take off and leave. That's the picture here. In other words, they were to eat with full confidence that rescue was near. They were leaving. Not, well, we'll eat and we'll fellowship for a while, and we'll hang out, and we'll see if this all really pans out. Now, this was a meal for a purpose. Eat it quickly, be done, and leave. Now, what was the purpose of this Passover? Was it just a memorial, just so they could remember this great day? Well, no. The purpose we can understand better by understanding reading verses 12 and 13 again and understanding that judgment was in fact coming. God says in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God is about to come in His final judgment he was going to do what he said he would do from the beginning. This was the goal of the ten plagues. Get to this plague. And, we, and I think that could be proven even more if we watch Pharaoh. How God said from the beginning, I will harden his heart. And then throughout all the plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Back and forth. God is working, has been working to bring them to this point. To get to this plague. So judgment is coming, the finality of the judgment on Israel. And, but then we see in verse 13, the purpose of the Passover was that judgment would be withheld from them. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's the main purpose of the Passover. That's the main purpose of all of the instructions for the lamb and the meal. Get that blood out there. The blood is a sign. A sign. Now, we learn in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, God says, You shall not eat the flesh of it with its life. That is its blood. Blood is representative of life. If you get the blood out of something, you've gotten the life out of it. It will not live without blood in it. And so the blood of a slaughtered lamb 
was to be smeared on the outer doorposts of the house where the family or perhaps a couple of families would be eaten inside. This blood that represented life. It's symbolic. You see, the blood on the outer doorpost was a sign that said death has already been here. Death has already came to this house. There's no more need for death here. Death was necessary. Death was coming. Judgment was coming. The question is not, is there going to be death? The question is, who's going to die? And the blood says, death's already been here. Someone has already died here. Again, the firstborn sons represent the continuity of the family and the nation. They represented the future of the nation as a whole. And so... While God was executing judgment on Israel's enemies, the blood of the Lamb showed that death had already visited that home, i.e. this family, i.e. this nation. This nation has been preserved from the judgment of God by this blood, this sign. In other words, Israel as a nation, Israel, God's firstborn son, has been spared the judgment of death and set free from their bondage by these countless slaughtered lambs. Now let's put that back into our, our equation. We're trying to keep all of this in our memory. Adam, the son of God, had his shame covered by the killing of an animal. Abraham sacrificed a ram as a substitute for his only son Isaac. And now Israel, God's firstborn son, is ransomed from bondage and death by the, sl the, the slaughter of a lamb. I hope you can see that this doctrine of the atonement, if you understand the doctrine, especially the way the New Testament authors explain the doctrine, then when you come back to read the Scriptures, you can see this is not a doctrine invented by the Apostle Paul. This is not a doctrine invented by medieval Roman Catholicism. This is a biblical doctrine. Paul helps us understand it. Christ fulfills it, but it's nothing new. This is what God has been doing in these types and shadows for centuries. And so then we come to the last point, which is our, our main point, the fulfillment of the Passover. We are reminded again of the apex of all of this divine revelation, the person and the work of Christ on behalf of sinners in the gospel. And you'll remember the very first week when we talked about this from, from Matthew's gospel. We talked about this idea of bondage or, or ransom. In a ransom situation, there are three parties. Who's, who's in bondage and, and, and to whom are we in bondage? We read in Romans 6.17 that we were once slaves of sin... In Romans 7, 6, we read that we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we're slaves of sin and slaves to the law. But then we read in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And in verse 19 of that same chapter, now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, sin and law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. See, we're, we're slaves, yes, to sin. We're slaves and held captive, yes, by the law, but ultimately it's to God to whom we must give an account. We're held accountable to Him for sinning by breaking His law. 
Because of the sin of Adam and because of sins committed in our lives, we are bound by the law of God to someday stand before Him and give an account for all of our actions. Again, we may walk around like free men, doing whatever we please, but our record is being kept in the infinite mind of God Almighty. Or to say it another way, all men by their human generation are in bondage. We're in the prison cell of sin that is locked tight by God's law, God's holiness, God's justice, and we are awaiting sentence. Notice that. Sentence. I'll come back to that. We must also understand that just like those in the Exodus, judgment or death is coming. We read in Scripture the threatenings of this judgment and death. John 3.36, whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son or obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's already there. The wrath is already there. If you don't believe in the Son, it's not that He will then give you some wrath. It's that it just stays. Believing on the Son gets the wrath removed. Or we read in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed, not will be, is revealed from heaven. Verse 24 of that chapter, Therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. That's the wrath of God. God's giving over. The reason in this room we did not show up with homemade shields and sticks and pepper spray and knives and just walk in and start bashing each other is because God is restraining our evil and our wickedness. But in some situations God will say, you want that? Have it. I'll show you what happens when, when I just withdraw my restraint just a little. That's what happens. We just attack each other. We just kill each other. It's already being revealed. We can watch it. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. It's coming. It's threatened. Wrath is here. The picture from the Scriptures is not that we are sitting in a cell awaiting to receive a good and fair trial by a jury of our peers. The picture is that we have already stood against the measuring rod of God's perfection. We have been found guilty. And though we may walk around with our heads held high like free men, the wrath of God already abides on the sons of men because all are sinners deserving death. Every one of us. Death is coming. In other words, somebody's dying in this situation. For God to be just, somebody must die. Somebody has to pay. And again, into that scene comes Christ, the, the antitype of that Paschal Lamb. Christ is the Lamb. Yes, He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the shoot from Jesse's stump, but He is also the Lamb, standing as though it had been slain there in that heavenly picture. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The pic... You understand, Christ, slain from the foundation of the world, the Lamb, it wasn't as if God had to 
Insta he instituted all these pictures of lambs, 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 lambs. We're going to see some more lambs next week. He got all that, and then he's like, okay, John, whenever Jesus comes, make sure you say, um, behold the Lamb of God, I guess. No, it's from eternity Christ is the slain Lamb. From all eternity. And so then when these pictures come, the Lamb, we say, yes, Christ. The Lamb on the Day of Atonement, yes, Christ. The Ram caught in the thicket, yes, Christ. It, it's all a picture. Christ is the Lamb. But He's also, we must understand, the sufficient Lamb. It meets all of the qualifications. He's holy and blameless and undefiled. At 30 years old, was in His prime, set apart for His earthly ministry. At 33, He had learned obedience through what He suffered. By His own blood, we learn in Hebrews, He was sanctified for the duty of bearing the weight of, his sin, of the sin of His people. In His death, he, was offered him, or he offered Himself once for all time for all of God's people, a single sacrifice. No drop of His blood was shed in vain. Every single drop, perfect and sufficient for its intended purpose. He hung on the cross, not a second too long, where we might say, well, God was a little unjust there. He was a little too severe. And He did not hang on the cross a second too short so that some of God's wrath would remain or to render God's wrath unabated, perfectly sufficient in every way in all of His work. And just like this Paschal Lamb, Christ gives us daily sustenance for those who come to Him in faith and take hold of Him and Him alone as our ground and our justification before God. He is sufficient for every daily need. We do not need to take extra Christ today because Monday through Friday is just going to be so hard. He's going to be there. He's enough, sufficient daily. His mercies are new every morning. And so the Lord Jesus Christ stands as our Paschal Lamb. He is the Lamb through whose blood or, or by whose blood the, the judgment that was upon us is passed over. He receives it for us. Now, how does that happen? Well, we've studied this before because His death is our death. In Galatians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, lest we say, well, I mean, yeah, the Apostle Paul was quite a, Quite a character. I mean, of course, he could say that. Of course, he died to the law. Well, we come to Romans 7, verse 4, and Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Through His body. In other words, because of the mystical union we share with Christ, His death is our death. We were crucified with Him. When He died, we died. The punishment we deserve because of our sin was paid in His body. You see, so that's how it works. We take hold of Christ by faith. You read John 6, this language of eating and drinking. If any man comes to me, so on and so forth, take my body, eat my body, eat my flesh over and over and over. And we wonder, if you pay attention, he's talking about faith, coming to Christ in faith. 
And so here's this, this picture painted across the, the doorposts of our lives. Christ's blood. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that the wrath of God abides on us. We know death is coming. And when death comes by our house, the all-sufficient, everlasting blood of Christ is like a stain on our doorposts. It remains there. Now, some of you have probably experienced uh, the door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. They come by your door, they want to sell you a vacuum cleaner. Now, imagine this scene. He comes by your house in the morning, and he wants to do a display. Can I display my vacuum cleaner? You say, sure, come in. You feel bad for the guy. He puts some dirt on the floor, vacuums it up. Okay, looks like a great vacuum cleaner. We've been needing a new vacuum cleaner. My wife hates our vacuum cleaner. So, sure, we'll take the vacuum cleaner. We pay for the vacuum cleaner. We sign up for the monthly payment plan. You've got the vacuum cleaner. He continues down to the end of your dead-end street. Then he comes back up to the street and knocks on your door again. You step over the kids, open the door. Your wife's in the house, vacuuming the living room right behind you. Yes, can I help you? Yes, I was wondering if I could... Do a demonstration of this vacuum cleaner I've got for sale. See if you guys would be interested in a vacuum cleaner. And you just look at him. <laughs> Are you confused? You've already been here. We don't, we don't, we've already got one. You see, that's the picture of Christ's blood over the door. It, it's speaking a better word than thousands of paschal lambs. When death comes because of sin, Christ's blood says death. You've already been here. Are you confused? We don't want any of what you're selling. It's already, you've already been here. We've already got some. Can't you see death has already been here? That's Christ's blood. He's already died. The death that we deserve has already taken place. And that's all of the judgment there is. And then lastly, we have to understand that this idea of slaves to righteousness. Just like the Israelites, it's not that we just get set free. Like Pharaoh says, all right, open the gate, and the Israelites just scattered out through the desert, just running for their lives. No, they came out as a family straight to the mountain of God, gathered to God to be His own, to be his own special people, to worship Him and obey Him. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Notice what the language here. We've been talking about bondage. We've talked about slavery. We've talked about freedom. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural inclinations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness... But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice the comparison back and forth. I've used the picture before of the turnstile at Carowinds. You know, you just walk through it, kink, and you just run, just scattering. That's not what's happened here. There's, you were slaves of sin, which leads to death, and now you, you've turned to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Once slaves of sin, now obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Once set free from sin, now having become slaves of righteousness. Once slaves of impurity to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Once slaves of sin, free in regard to righteousness, now set free from sin, becoming slaves to God. Again, it's not as though just because of Christ's blood, we've avoided death. And we say, whew, that was close. I almost died, but now I didn't. So... Thank you. And we go about our way. That's not what happened. God in Christ paid the ransom price to release us from bondage so that we would be a special people for Himself. Slaves of obedience. Obedient from the heart. Not just outward rote obedience. I do it because I have to. Obedient from the heart. Our hearts are changed. We want to worship God. Slaves of righteousness. We're bound and constrained by our hearts. I want to obey God. Set free from sin. Sin no longer has a restraint on you, but you are a slave to God. And you wake up every day saying, I must do what God commands. I must obey God. I think many people want to have the death angel pass them by because of Christ's blood, but they don't want to flee Egyptian bondage. The two are inseparable. You eat with your belt on and your robe on and your stick in your hand and your shoes on your feet because when you get done, you're leaving. You can't separate the two. You don't get salvation from hell or, or uh, freedom from sin without bondage and slavery unto God. We're slaves of righteousness. And so as we come to the Lord's table, that's, that's what I want you to, to think upon this in this time of self-examination, ask yourself, does that describe me? Not, do I like the idea of being set free from sin, of, of being released from hell, of, of having my eternity settled, of going to heaven when I die? But do I like the idea? Am I a slave of obedience? Am I obedient from the heart to God's standard of teaching? Am I a slave of righteousness? Have I been set free from sin? Am I a slave to God? Again, not in order to be saved, but as a sign. Christ's death has already set me free from that. Now I am enjoying the freedom of the sons of God. Having taken hold of Christ by faith, have I rendered myself dead to sin and alive to God. So take a moment and examine your hearts and then we'll come to the Lord's table.